Chelsea Fairless. I guess I'll start the podcast off with an apology because we're recording a day later because I took a few days off, guys. I went out to the desert. You took a little like mental health vacay? (laughs) Or was it a romantic getaway? Hard to say. A bit of both. Yeah. Paul and I (laughs) went out to Joshua Tree. I think there are certain locations where an Airbnb is appropriate and there are certain locations where hotels are more appropriate, like Palm Springs Hotel. Yes. Joshua Tree, very much an Airbnb place. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you can't really have an Airbnb in Palm Springs now anyway, because like they're so fascist about like noise and like the amount of people in the house. You remember this. I do. You had a joint birthday party in 2020 at an Airbnb in Palm Springs where I was forced to stay at a hotel (laughs) because um, I was not allowed. Yeah, it's totally a bummer like getting an Airbnb there. But Joshua Tree, yes, absolutely. Is there even a hotel in Joshua Tree? I don't even think there is. That's what I was going to say. I mean, there's 29 Palms and there's various inns. Sorry, are you talking about Jared Leto's skincare brand again? (laughs) Is that what it's called? The 29 Palms? something like that, right? That sort of went nowhere. I get his skincare brand confused with Brad Pitt's, which is that anywhere? Um, Brad Pitt's, yeah, we haven't heard from him in a minute. Domain, that was his. Right, right. It had to be slightly French. But I, we were driving around Joshua Tree and, and we put on U2's The Joshua Tree album and I was like, oh, I think this is the inn that they stayed in. And Paul was looking it up. Chelsea, do you know that you two recorded the Joshua Tree album in Ireland? That does not surprise me. I'm more shocked to learn that you're a U2 fan. Like, where did this come from? That was the other thing is we were discussing what I call family bangers. And what I mean by that is stuff that we grew up with, like that our parents would play. Look, I'm not like a monster. Like, Where the Streets Have No Name is a very good song. I've just never heard the words U2 coming out of your mouth. I've never heard the letter U and the number two come out of your mouth. Well, when in Joshua Tree, I was like, well, we have to put this album on. Yeah, it's true. You're all also like supposed to listen to like Graham Parsons and that kind of shit. Only to learn that they went out and just spent literally a day in Joshua Tree. They just sort of had this idea of Americana in the desert. They were in the Mojave, which is not near Joshua Tree. So they're posers. Yes! <laughs> they're posers, but they did get Walter Van Buren Donk to do their tour costumes that one time. So, you know, everyone has their pluses and minuses. But... I feel like I now can no longer listen to the Joshua Tree album. It's it's all Again, lies. you listened to it before? <laughs> I will say you two singles only. We discovered <laughs> Paul was like this album is great and then we were listening to it and it was like, "Oh no, it's really just the three songs where the streets have no name with or without you." And one. Is that on the <laughs> Oh, come on. That's like their biggest song. Remember when you 2 performed at the Super Bowl right after September 11th? Okay, so I have seen you 2 in concert, but it was... Wait, what? <laughs> but it was because No Doubt was opening. Okay, right, right, fair. And this was for the Rock Steady album. So that was also right after 9-11. And I just remember in the Staples Center, which I will always call it the Staples Center, Bono sang like a 13-minute version of Sunday, Bloody Sunday, carrying the American flag. See, that sounds like my nightmare. <laughs> it was. That, that I could do without. 
You know, it also kind of hits, actually. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's the third hit. One is not on this. A track called One Tree Hill is on this. Oh, you mean on the album Joshua yeah. Tree. Right, right. Yes, of course. Please don't DM us about this, guys. We know. Anyway... It's funny that millennials have really adopted Joshua Tree as a place of retreat because there's a lot of don't tread on me and Trump 2024 flags in people's yards. Oh, yeah. Like when I was staying there during the pandemic, it's not there anymore, but there was a Trump store. Like oh. there was a bootleg Trump. Like I always kind of wanted to go in there, but then was just like a little too scared to, you know, it was always empty. It was just like giving haunted vibes. But yeah, that's where everyone buys their like, let's go Brandon paraphernalia in Joshua Tree. But then there will also be places like the Joshua Tree Coffee Company and, you know, a, a place called the 29 Palms outpost general store but it's all full of like expensive candles and shit you're talking to me about this as if i haven't been there multiple times i'm explaining to our fuckettes for those who've never been to joshua tree <laughs> well that sounds fun that sounds restorative yeah the place we stayed at is cute we should all go there there were definitely way more bedrooms than were needed but i chose this place because it had a pool and a hot tub, which if you've ever looked for an Airbnb in Joshua Tree, you usually get one or the other. Yeah, that's a rarity for sure. Paul was making this point about Airbnbs, which is there is a choice with a lot of Airbnbs where people have bought this purely for them to rent out. That's like a part-time job for like half the people that live in Los Angeles is managing a rental property in Joshua Tree. For sure, but Paul's point, which is correct, is why do they always get the cheapest appliances? One would imagine that you would want to invest in these appliances as they're going to be used constantly. True, true. They had a microwave in this Airbnb, Chelsea, that I swear to God felt like an easy-bake oven. It felt so fake. <laughs> I thought it was going to explode. There was just a start and stop button. There wasn't anything else. <laughs> No more options. Well, beyond that, it sounds like you had a great time. Yeah. I feel like if you live in Los Angeles, you have like one kind of desert personality. And I think I'm an Idlewild person, which is a mountain town above the desert. Right. I don't know if I need to go back to Joshua Tree once a year. No, I'm definitely a jo I love it there. I know you do. But I also love Palm Springs, so. Yeah, you're a Palm Springs girl, really. What were you up to while I was gone? Oh, my mother-in-law is in town, so I have been eating well, Ooh. as you can imagine. Like, I have eaten at, like, every Evan Funky restaurant within the course of a week, like that vibes. But I've realized something about the restaurant landscape in Los Angeles, which is that are any restaurants in West Hollywood or Beverly Hills not Italian? In Beverly Hills, you've got all Italian places, Nate Nals, and Mr. Chow. That's it. Yeah, Mr. Chow is like the outlier. Went there too. How was it? Tell me everything. Delightful. How was the new Evan Funky restaurant? It's good. Great. In contrast to Mother Wolf, the decor is very different. Like, I feel like Mother Wolf is more like classical Italian, and this is giving very, like, Beverly Hills mega restaurant it's like every wall it's like oh there's a Basquiat there's a Warhol there's a Tracy Emin like it's very like that Tad is very good at getting reservations it's not hard to get reservations you have to sign up for the updates from Resi oh it almost always comes through just hot tip to anyone I should sign up for a reservation update for horses okay <laughs> 
we're not getting into that. It's too dark. Lauren put this on the dock, and I was like, I don't want to talk about murdering cats. By the way, for like the seven people listening to this podcast who have no idea what we're talking about, they're like, what? Horses are murdering cats? (laughs) So... Horses is a restaurant in West Hollywood that is very sceny and very popular. And it came out last week that the co-owners who were married have had like the most fucked up, messy divorce, a lot of like domestic violence shit. But the woman is alleging that the guy killed multiple cats or was it the other way around? No, she the wife has accused her soon to be ex-husband of murdering their adopted cats and potentially finding him gratifying himself with the cat. Having said all this, still can't get a reservation to horses. (laughs) Focus on the important issues. (laughs) Which is really sad too, Chelsea. Think about me. That restaurant is probably going to close it. I will have never (laughs) been able to go there. Lord, I'm telling you, it's all about the resi wait list. Just get into it. I'm sure we could get in tonight at like 8.30. Let's get into it because many (laughs) things have happened since I went out to the desert. One of which is there's a Sex in the City experience. This is happening. What are the dates? Only June 8th to 11th. So this is a event that is happening in New York akin to Britney's The Zone experience, I'm assuming, right? Yes, would you like me to get into it? Sure. The immersive experience features the recreation of main character Carrie Bradshaw's brownstone stoop and apartment with the opportunity to take a photo in front of her famous laptop. Guests can also step into Carrie's closet, which highlights some of the show's iconic fashions. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I want to know about the setup of the laptop. Because is the photo like through the window? (laughs) Or is it from the side like in the meme of her typing? That's a great question. I know people are asking us to go. That's a that's a TBD thing. Yeah, we we may we may not. We'll see. However, another thing that happened in the desert is Paul has always had a weird sticking point that he's never watched Seinfeld. He's like, I don't get it. That's like the worst take I've ever heard a person have. I know. Well, he's got worse ones, but I showed him Seinfeld for the first time and he's like, this show's great, actually. That is the most (laughs) fucked up shit I've ever heard in my life. This is the perils of dating a straight man, Chelsea. (laughs) But straight men love Seinfeld. It's confusing however i am bringing this up only to say that i was showing him the episode where kramer does the real peterman tour and i feel like we could do our own like be kind rewind version of carrie's apartment because we have that laptop (laughs) like oh yeah i have the the chloe horses dress chiffon dress that she wore in season four like we could do our own version of this in lhl well i was thinking we should do something on instagram where we just sort of go through our collection because we have amassed some random ass shit at this point. Yeah, I'm thinking of one particular item we bought at auction during your Palm Springs uh, birthday party vacation. Which was what? The absolute hunk poster. <laughs> oh yeah, we have that. We still need to frame that. We, uh, we're we going to put that in our new office. Guys, Lauren is sacrificing her guest room so we can have like... And every outfit headquarters? Yeah. And the first order of business is framing the absolute hunk poster. Anyway, back to it. This episode is brought to you by Framebridge. It's not. They stopped advertising with us. Fuck. That sucks because I actually really love them. Anyway, as fans exit Carrie's closet, they can explore a variety of fashions from the show's history, including bags, outfits, and heels curated by and just like that costume designers Molly Rogers and Danny Santiago. 
The pop-up experience also features an interactive post-it wall. Did we not do this five years ago in an event? Okay, we'll see what it actually looks like. Or is the interactive post-it wall like you get to write something Yeah, on the I think that's what it is. We just had a wall of post-its and then we blew up like post-its to made giant post-its. They also have a gift shop with exclusive Sex and the City 25 merchandise and a cosmopolitan bar. I mean, I definitely want to go. This sounds super fun. When I was reading this to Paul, he asked, when are they sending you a season two big box of swag? Fingers crossed. Which you might remember in the run up to season one, they sent us a box that I literally can fit into with Sex and the City merch. And we got the, um, because they had to send the West Coast boxes first. We got a frame of a photo of Mr. Big in it that was not in the boxes sent to East Coast influencers. Right. Yeah, the Hollywood Reporter article dropped the second, like, the DHL guy came and picked up our box. You also will not let me get rid of the box. It is in my garage for all of eternity, I guess. See, we could also have that in our Bobo Sex in the City experience. <laughs> and just like that, every outfit Sex in the City pop Yeah, but it's just in your garage and it's like the <laughs> saddest thing in the world. We still do have like 10,000 bottles of Cointreau from whenever we did Spawn for them. We could make Cosmos for everyone. From 2014 to 2017, everyone was starting museums for everything, like museums for broken relationships, the Museum of Ice Cream. Ours could be like the Museum of Outdated Spawn Con, and it's all the stuff we have, like vibrators and Cointreau. (laughs) In other news, HBO Max is now Simply Max. How are we feeling about the royal blue color? What's the vibe? Yes, Max has launched what began as HBO Go and then was HBO Now that we then all accept as HBO Max has evolved into its final form, question mark, as the new combined HBO Max Discovery Plus service. It still bothers me that their original shows are not a Max original, it's Max original. No, I hear you. It's not Max's original and just like that. It's Max original and just like that. Wild. I actually think the new color is an improvement. You think? Like it's more generic than the purple. Like this color could be used for like any bank. You know what I mean? It is giving like Eve's Klein Chase Bank vibes. I mean, vibes. It's, it's not quite no. Eve's Klein. That is a generous read. But I do think it's better than the purple. I'm a person that doesn't like change. So I guess I'm just used to the HBO Max purple. Yeah. And so I liked it. I mean, HBO Max as a brand is like a huge part of our our identity. So now we have to like recalibrate things. It's just really wild that out of everything, out of all of the IP between HBO and Discovery and then the sub HBO brand Cinemax, it's been reduced down to Max. I agree. I don't know if you noticed this because you're obviously not on the sicko movie bro side of Twitter that I'm on. But in its first day of launching, Max got rid of the writer, director, producer classification and instead just listed it as creators. Okay. Instead of just seeing like written by so-and-so, directed by Martin Scorsese, it was like every producer, every writer, and it was in alphabetical order. So if you are watching something for the first time, you aren't aware of who's directing the film. 
Okay, that's weird. Yes, they quickly were like, oh, that um, that was a coding mistake. We don't know how that happened. It's like, no, no, no. You created like a bucket that said creators. This was very intentional. And then you got your asses handed to you. In a move where like the DGA and the WGA together were like, this is fucked up. And they were like, okay, we're sorry. Well, you live, you learn, you know? And I loved HBO Max and now I love Max. Max is where we go to see Sex in the City. Like, Max, they still have all the best shows. It's the same thing. Except Real Sex or Taxi Cab Confessions. You cannot find anywhere. It is a move that is either, like, pure stupidity or evil genius to launch it now because it's, it has begged all of us to re-log into our accounts on the eve of the Succession and Barry series finales. But I think that that right. was purposeful. That you would go through the effort to re-log in You've, of course, forgotten your password already or your password needs to be changed. So you'll go through all of that just so you can see if if Tom ends up taking over on Succession. We don't, by the way, talk about Succession because Chelsea's two seasons behind. I'm so behind, (laughs) I know. But I'm going to catch up this month when Tat's out of town. Shall we get into Can? Yes, we can. (laughs) Shall we talk about the red carpet first or the movies first? Let's get into the red carpet. We are every outfit, (laughs) after all. Okay, well then I think we should start by talking about Natalie Portman, who wore a recreation of the Christian Dior Junin gown. And this gown fucked with me so hard because at first I saw it and I was like, slay. Like, I appreciate the reference. But then I looked closer and I was like, I retract this sleigh. This is not a faithful recreation of the dress. Well, we need to take one step backwards because the lack of media literacy that people have, because the first day I just saw people being like, oh my God, that's so amazing. She's wearing the 1949 Dior dress, believing that she's wearing that archival piece. It's like, are you out of your minds? That's in that touring Dior exhibition <laughs> somewhere. You think the V&A or whoever owns that that dress is going to allow like the smoking Europeans and like boozy Euro trash that were invariably going to spill champagne on it out of its sight. Of course, this is a fucking recreation. But like, I don't know why they stopped midway through the recreation (laughs) process, because like if you look at Natalie Portman's gown versus the original, the original has at least like 75% more beads. It's like they stopped beating at a certain point. Also, I feel like the bodice is very like stiff and feels almost separate from the rest of the gown. Right. Whereas the original felt very sort of like fluid and sensual. It's because Natalie is Miss Dior. If she was the face of J'adore Dior, they would have beaded that full gown. I cannot fucking believe she's still Miss Dior. Babe, she's going to be Miss Dior when she's 80. It's so fucking Doing wild. some Martha Stewart shit. Also, I know we didn't put this in the doc, but can we briefly talk about Martha Stewart's Sports Illustrated cover? Hot. I agree that it's hot, but like, who took these fucking pictures? <laughs> have you seen the photos? Yes, I have. It's like actually crazy. Like, they look like they were taken on like several different iPhones. The lighting is like... How? To me, it just like made me a bit sad because I was like, fuck, like, why can't they get like the same person that shot Megan Fox, which was Greg Swales, by the way, and he would have done a great job at shooting Martha. You're saying they just put like a Klieg light in front of her face and then photographed it with an iPhone. I'm just saying like Martha is great. We love her. But these photos are 
atrocious and I think a slap in the face. But anyway, that was a digression. What else happened at Cannes? Obviously, our love, Isabelle Huppert. In Balenciaga. One concerned fuckette did send us a DM that was like, what is going on on her feet? And it's like, it's just, it's nude sock boots. It's fine. This somehow felt more avant-garde than most of her previous Balenciaga looks. And it is because of that shoe, which basically looks like a bare foot, but she's wearing a high heel. It's a strange optical illusion. It's a bare foot without any toenails. It is a very right. Barbie-esque <laughs> fake foot of sorts. And another iconic woman of a certain age, Michelle Yeoh, also in Balenciaga. More trad, though. Like, this was like green taffeta movie star shit. Yeah, I saw a terrible take on some blog that was like, this is the worst she's ever looked. And I was like, mm, no. no. <laughs> Hard disagree. Also, Helen Mirren, not in Balenciaga, but arguably the most subversive of all. You're talking about the look with the blue dress and the matching blue hair? Yeah, I would say it was more periwinkle. My mistake. Uh, I'm sorry. Periwinkle hair. Periwinkle Updo and shockingly not for the Little Mermaid premiere. I mean, we've discussed this before, but the can red carpet is what the Met Gala should look like. Like the level of fun and glitz and glamour that celebrities bring to this red carpet is what they should be doing for the Met. Well, also you get a variety of looks at can, right? Because there's so many events. So we see everyone in bare minimum one daytime look and two evening looks, right? I mean, it's a very world-renowned and respected, but it started because the tourism board wanted to get people to the south of France before the season started. And so they just invented a film festival. So I always love when people shit on, like, why are these models here? It's like, it's made up. It's because rich French people want to be around beautiful models. It's not that complicated. Yeah. It's like, why is Arena Shank on every red carpet? Because she's pretty and she wears cool things. It does feel like she is on every red carpet, though. But every year there's a different model. Like, in the 90s, that was Eva Herzegova. She was in that famous, like, Helmut Newton shoot that they did at Cannes. Like, that's where, yeah, a lot of those photos are from. Yeah, they love inviting Bella Hadid. I guess this year Gigi just switched off with her. Anyway, of all the models, who did you think was best dressed? I really liked Arena Shake in the Moa Lola, like, leather outfit. While it didn't literally remind me of young Angelina Jolie, spiritually there's something about it that was giving that. I think because it had a very low-slung, like, leather skirt that kind of was giving those, like, hip huggers that she used to wear. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Um, well, I always support Stella Maxwell because of her lesbianism, especially because of that TMZ video of her and Miley Cyrus fucking. But I also did think she looked good in um, her Versace like safety pin gown. It's an evergreen look for sure. Yeah. Hari Neff and Fendi. Gorgeous. It's nice to see someone do minimalism at Cannes, but also have their tits out. You know, like, I feel like Cannes is a really good place to be, like, vaguely topless, if not fully topless. I mean, I think the most famous tits-out Cannes look would be Chicholina. She really set the bar with that. Should we talk about <laughs> hits and misses with the uh, Chanel Blood Oath ambassadors? Can we start with Marianne Cotillard? Of course. I don't want to be ageist because I do not subscribe to those sorts of like fashion conventions. However. However, that one outfit was like limited to shit. 
Like, this is like Stacy from the Babysitter's Club vibes. Right. You are talking about this knit? I mean, it looked vaguely denim. It's denim shorts that have some sort of, like, pink airbrush ombre something on them. Then, like, a little Chanel, like, I think it's like a knit cardigan, right, in a top. And then these white lace-up ankle boots that feel very like Stevie Nicks adjacent, like a Victorian boot. The proportions were off, and I think it starts with the denim short. And I say this as someone who struggles to wear a denim short just because of my body proportions. We all should struggle to wear denim shorts. It needed to be a capri, honestly. It definitely didn't need an ankle boot. I will say that much. They're somehow high-waisted. Like, the zipper of this is so long. Remember how we talked about how she was unrecognizable at the Met Gala and now she's back to her old self how did that happen so she was clearly wearing a wig at the Met yeah she was wearing a wig but it wasn't just the wig if you put those photos side by side it's like impossible for me to reconcile that this is the same person and these were taken no more than three weeks apart Yes, for those who maybe didn't listen to our Met Gala episode, Marion Cotillard looked like a K-pop star. Yeah, or like a straight-up model, like Anya Rubik or something. Very confusing. We also have Lily Rose Depp, who was in a fall-winter 94 ready-to-wear look that was originally worn by Christy Turlington. Yeah, she looked great. Although, have you seen the video of her exiting her hotel in that outfit, uh, smoking a cigarette while getting into a van and tossing out the cigarette right before? No, but what's the big deal it's not a big deal everyone's like oh that's so cunty that's so cool and then i just saw this one tweet that like immediately put the fire out of how cool this looked with just it was like wow she really couldn't wait to be photographed like holding a cigarette because she wanted to look bad like so badly well i feel like that's part of her brand and it makes sense with the idol and stuff coming up she just wanted it for the photo but to smoke a cigarette as you're leaving a hotel to only put it out to get in the van really does feel like, oh, you just did it for the picture. Yeah, no, absolutely. Before we move on, I do need to discuss that I believe Brie Larson might be a new Chanel ambassador because she's she's on the jury and she has habitually been seen in god-awful Chanel ensembles throughout this festival. Okay, question about Brie Larson. Aside from the film Room... Yes. Has she been in any other movie? Of course you think she's been in no other movies because she is in the Marvel Universe now. Why? She doesn't seem like that kind of actor. I think no one has put it better than Who Weekly when they described her as Brie Larson and her Brie Larson personality. (laughs) Which is (laughs) like Gen Xers trying to define irony in the 90s. I cannot define what that means, but I completely 100% understand what it means. Like if you put Brie Larson in a lineup and asked 100 random random people like which one of these people won best actress like how many people do you think would figure it out like five I question if we would even be able to pick her out I only know that she won best actress because I remember the facts that she didn't clap for was it Casey Affleck when he won right when right. take photos with him yeah serve so that's the roundabout way that uh, I know that she's won an Academy Award. <laughs> Here's the thing. It's about losing an Academy Award these days. It's not about winning one. Because that's what you remember. Glenn Close, Annette Benning. But this fate only befalls like women of a certain age who are just like overdue. Were there other people that you liked? You know what? I think Maya Hawk is interesting. I feel like her can looks were fun. Like they were wacky. 
Yes. I was kind of like, yeah, sure. I assume you're referring to the look that you wore to the Asteroid City premiere, which was the long Prada dress with the blue I thought it was cool. The hair was insane. But she also turned out this really good, like, denim scaparelli daytime look that I think was perhaps her strongest moment. Well, she does have a face to pull off avant-garde style, so that's exciting. We've yet to have an ingenue in recent years that, one, has the fashion bona fides, like her mother. I mean, her mother had a deep relationship with Prada, so it's exciting to see that continue. Yeah. That wants to dress cool and has the opportunities to. Yeah. And as of yet does not have a blood oath with any brand. I feel like she probably has one with Prada. And if it's with Prada, I'm okay with it. Yeah. I will say, speaking of other people who have brand blood oaths, Jennifer Lawrence, I thought, looked like a full-ass fucking movie star Yeah, in that custom red Dior dress. Very classic. And red is a really good color on her. Yeah, she looked good. She looked really good. It was good to see her. I also liked, I don't know if you saw this, Jeremy O'Harris and Willie Chavaria and... Also, I assume his personal Scaparelli bag. I actually saw Willie at Dover Street Market yesterday. He was shopping. Very nice. Yeah, cute little spotting. I think Nadia Lee Cohen looked really good. She wore Saint Laurent. And of the very tall, beautiful women who wore those, you know, hooded, drapey gowns, I thought she looked the best. Yeah, I saw a lot of people annoyed at how much Saint Laurent and Balenciaga was on the red carpet, but Keurig sponsored a lot of events and there was a Balenciaga dinner. So that's why. Right. And we got like Salma Hayek and Balenciaga and stuff. But a lot of the Balenciaga was like kind of like old stuff. Like some people like obviously like Isabelle Huppert and, you know, Salma got new shit, but... I feel like there was stuff from some of their older couture collections in the mix. Which I'm fine with. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The nowness of things kind of need to stop. That's why I enjoy Jeremy O'Harris, because it's very clear that that was probably his own Scaparelli bag. Yeah, he always looks good. Can we get into what is sure to be our favorite film of this year? Absolutely. So we have been desperate to see Todd Haynes's new film, May-December, ever since it was announced. We tragically were not fortunate enough to see this film at Cannes, but my favorite Australian power lesbian, Kate Jinks, was there, and she's agreed to be our roving correspondent. Kate is the programmer of the Melbourne Film Festival, co-host of the podcast See Also, which we will link to in the show notes, and these are her thoughts on May-December. Cuckoo Chelsea and Lauren, this is Kate Jinks, your official can reporter, calling from the Quasset. I have seen so many films over the last 10 days, my eyes are practically bleeding, but one of the best that I've seen is Todd Haynes' new film, May, December, which I think you'll both la flip for. It's uh, Todd Haynes at his most high camp, his most melodramatic He's most fun. It's really good. Natalie Portman plays an actress who goes down to Savannah to shadow Julianne Moore, who plays Gracie. And Natalie Portman's going to play her in a no doubt extremely tawdry biopic because Gracie was an adult woman who had a sexual relationship with a 13-year-old, went to prison, came out of prison, and then married him and had three kids with him. And he is played by Charles Melton, who apparently was in Riverdale, which is a show I have never had any time for. But maybe I do now because he's excellent. He's kind of like this himbo who 
is only working out the power dynamics in his relationship because Natalie Portman is essentially stirring up a lot of shit while she's in town. It has this great scene-stealing performance by Corey Michael Smith, who you might remember as the private detective who completely fucks over Carol and Therese while they're on the road in Todd Haynes' Carol. But the real star of the show is Julianne Moore's Lisp. It is so good and when paired with the extremely over-the-top score from the movie The Go-Between, which is in this film, uh, like in a nutshell, I know that you love a Julianne Moore quotable line, don't we all? But one of the best from this is when Julianne Moore, at the very beginning of the film, goes to the fridge, extreme melodramatic music plays, she opens the fridge and there's silence and then she says, I don't think we've got enough hot dogs. That's the film. It's kind of perfect. Okay, bisu. Todd Haynes' persona-esque twist on an actress researching a Mary Kay Letourneau-like figure for a film that stars Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, how is it not going to be our favorite film, not just of this year, but maybe ever? The fact that pretty much every single review of it has mentioned (laughs) Persona too, which is like one of our holy grail films. Also, it's, it's like Persona meets notes on a scandal, but funny. Or campy, I guess, is the vibe. Everyone's saying that about May-December. Well, it's funny because the reviews I read were like, it's less tonally like to die for, but it's like, this seems pretty campy, the way that Kate is describing this. And I will say, this is the first time I'm hearing Julia Moore has a lisp in this film. I'm so ready for that. Also, Todd Haynes, he's already given us so much, right? Like, the best movies in the world. When I heard about the plot of this, I was like, what more could he give us? But then I heard about his new movie that he talked about at Cannes. Did you read about this? Yes, of course. While doing press for May-December, Haynes revealed his next film is a gay love story set in the 1930s Los Angeles starring Joaquin Phoenix, which according to Haynes, Phoenix has pushed him to make this an NC-17 film. I can't. Like, literally doing the Lord's work. I saw on Twitter, it was like, this is Joaquin's first gay role. And someone was like, oh, really? And then they posted a a screen cap from the master. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, back to May-December. Only to say that Netflix has acquired the North American rights of the film. And I imagine it will be released in the fall in time for award season. Ugh, bless. What do you think about Julianne Moore's outfit that she wore to the premiere to me it's very star trek it's louis vuitton i'm kind of into it but i'm kind of not into it i think she needed the star trek facial prosthetics to make it really make sense though (laughs) for it to go full force yeah another thing we didn't discuss was louis vuitton and its brand ambassadors were out in force Uh, a lot of custom looks on alicia vikander and they were bad so bad that i was like let's not even discuss it Speaking of bad, um, The Idol premiered at Cannes. Okay, well, we haven't seen it, so I don't think it's fair to say that it's bad. I think it's fair to say that critics think that it is sexist, rapey torture porn. Max's latest offering, The Idol, premiered its first two episodes at Cannes, and I would expect nothing less from Sam Levinson, because premiering a TV show at Cannes is pretty extra. 
coming off of a salacious, none-too-flattering Rolling Stone article about the seemingly hellish production of this show, the idol predictably did get not great reviews, with Rolling Stone noting that the show is nasty, brutish, feels much longer than it is, and way, way worse than you'd have anticipated. See, they could be describing showgirls. And Variety noted, the script seems calculated to fool audiences into thinking they're observing how Hollywood operates when so much of it amounts to tawdry cliches. I thought the more telling review, which is kind of my issue with Levinson's Brazer-esque brutalizing hardcore worldview, is this review from Collider, which says, What Levinson perceives as provocative and subversive is rather underwhelming. How can a show with so much nudity, sex, and eroticism be so bland? Okay, that is a diss. That would be the one that would hurt me the most. And as someone that has seen pretty much all of his oeuvre, including Malcolm and Marie, I agree with this. I mean, I don't because Euphoria is incredible. I haven't seen this show, so I don't want to judge it based on these reviews. But also, you did not mention the other criticism, which is that The weekend can't act, apparently, allegedly. Oh, yeah, we haven't seen the show, Chelsea. Yeah. I'm just saying there's so many things that everyone hates that we like. Like, so many things are completely critically panned. So I always just kind of want to take this kind of stuff with a grain of salt if I haven't yet seen it. This is very true, and having seen his previous work, which, by the way, I I enjoy. I enjoy Euphoria. I enjoy Assassination Nation. I yes. find Malcolm and Marie a fascinating film, not for its actual content, but its backstory. And given the backstory of what happened with this show, that The weekend had a falling out with the original show creator, Amy Simons, and that 80% of the show was essentially rewritten, I am curious to see if it really is what the reviews are saying. Because ultimately every review is like, oh, there's a good show in there, which is about a woman going through the meat grinder that is the entertainment industry. That it seems like the way that the media has portrayed the making of this show, that Amy Simons was a very female-focused vision of that, and then Sam Levinson came in and just did the opposite of that. By showing how brutalizing the entertainment industry it can be, by brutalizing this female pop star. Right. So what are we actually going to get to watch this? I don't know, but at a press conference, Levinson's response to the controversial Rolling Stone article was to quip, I think we may have the show of the summer. So I assume soon? What do you mean? I just drove past a billboard for it on Sunset Boulevard. Like, surely it has to have a release date, right? Oh, shit. June 4th. Okay. Great. In other news, there was an Anita Pellenberg documentary called Anita that premiered. The project was brought to the directors by Marlon Richards, who wanted his mother's story to be told in all its complexity. I guess we'll see never-before-seen Super 8 film, and it is narrated by Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, I'm excited for that. If anyone's unfamiliar with Anita Pallenberg, she was an actress and a model, but is most famous for basically dating, like, everyone in the Rolling Stones. Like, she dated Brian Jones, then she dated Keith Richards, had kids with him, had an affair with Mick Jagger when they were shooting the film Performance, and... You know, she's a fashion icon. There's no Kate Moss or early 2000s Sienna Miller without this woman's influence. She's kind of like a bohemian rock and roll 
style icon. Yeah, the director said that they approach this film as an act of historical reclamation, putting the female perspective back in the official narrative of rock and roll, making what's so often invisible visible again. I want this documentary yeah, I now. Know. I'm so pumped. <laughs> I'm so pumped. So, can had it all, Chelsea, including a Dua Lipa Versace fashion show. Oh, we want to get into that now? I mean, yeah, why not? Let's talk about it. I... I'm so into it. Well, I think we are getting what we've long talked about, which is why don't designers just redesign their classic pieces? And it seems like we are going to get that, except it's just through special collections with influencers or pop stars or such. Because we kind of got that with Kim Kardashian and Dolce & Gabbana. Well, yeah, we literally got that. Well, Versace's been doing this for a minute because they did that show... I think it was in like 2018, which was where they really dug into the archives of like Gianni and like all those prints. They had the show with all the supermodels. That was an incredible collection. And then they did that amazing collection that was referencing like the under the sea Gianni Versace shit, which was also great. And then they also, whenever it was, or maybe it was the 20th anniversary of the Jennifer Lopez wearing the Grammy dress where she came out again. So they've been doing that. But I think that the stuff that they pulled out of the archives for the Dua Lipa collection is my favorite part of the Versace archive, which is all the stuff that's really girly. And it's also giving a lot of showgirls. It's giving Versace. Well, yeah, there's one like metallic sea foam. It was like a mini skirt and a like a denim jacket that was quite similar to a Versace outfit that Elizabeth Berkeley wore in Showgirls to the uh, the opening night of Goddess. And I believe is worn by Iris Law, who is the daughter of Sadie Frost and Jude Law. Yeah. It girls making the next generation of it girls. I think we talked about this on the Zoolander episode, but I really, really like 1990s interpretations of the 60s. And there were elements of that in this collection as well. And like the the hair, like the Valley of the Dolls by way of Guido Buffons. Like right. Amelia Gray Hamlin's first look is yeah. one of my favorite Versace looks of all time. She wore like a pink crystal bathing suit with this insane bouffant like strappy sandals. It was just such a good look, such a good moment. My favorite look of the show just for presentation only was the bathing suit portion where the it's uh, two models and they both have their hair in towels. And then they're also holding their bags in the crook of their arms, which to me is such a distinctly 2005 mid-aughts way of holding a bag. Yeah, it was very campy. I also really liked the polka dot butterfly section, whatever that was, which was another archival print, but wasn't as obsessed with the men's looks. Like, fun from a camp standpoint. I like the harness as vests under the (laughs) suit looks. Yeah, men, they can wear harnesses too, Chelsea. I'm pretty sure they're the ones that wore them to begin with, Lauren. (laughs) We've talked about how outsized Irina Shank's red carpet looks, but she might have the most subdued look at the Versace show, which is just... She doesn't because the back is an exposed thong. Oh, well, I'm only looking at the front, which makes her look like a You missed the most important part of the look. Did Vogue stop doing that like up down thing? I look like I'm giving the benediction at a Catholic (laughs) church. Well, I think that brands have to pay extra for the inclusion of like detail shots, like back views, like uh, supplementary stuff. 
I yeah. think. I could be wrong. The backs really should be on Vogue Runway or Tag Walk or whichever one you prefer. So butterflies are really having a moment in the zeitgeist because at the Dior Resort show in Mexico City, it was just butterflies everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm not mad. I personally love a butterfly motif. How do you feel about the Frida Kahlo references? Because, you know, it took place in Mexico City. I don't feel bad about it. I think... Actually, this is one of her best shows. Like, I think that her strength is making, like, practical clothes for, like, living human women and, like, injecting them with a bit of, like, storytelling and romanticism. And I think that this show did that really well. And, you know, of course, a lot of it was about Mexican fashion and craft and she worked with a number of local artisans on the jewelry embroideries hats stuff like that and yeah I think I think she did a good job this show has over a hundred looks so of course like would I edit it down to 50 yes we've never been like the biggest Dior fans obviously if you've listened to this podcast before but I you know I respect what she did here the three-piece suits were really beautiful that you can almost imagine like Frida Kahlo in and like some of those self-portraits where she was like dressed as a man. Those were definitely hot. I mean, it does have some of the like brain dead liberal feminism that she's been putting through Dior collections that we're not essentially the biggest fans of. Now, would you say that this is girl power tonic or iconic? What is that embroidery, Chelsea? I have no idea. Look, there's always a tension because she's always collaborating with various feminist artists, creatives. And of course, there's a tension to fusing that with, you know, a luxury brand, a brand that's really mostly about selling those bags that say Christian Dior and the matching flats that say Christian Dior. I just don't know if I need a dress with the words feminazi (laughs) embroidered on them. Look, not my favorite, but I think that there were some pieces. And if there were 75 looks, perhaps this wouldn't have been in there. In other fashion news, Ludwig de Saint-Cernan is out at Angie Mulemeester after one season. And I didn't even get a chance to buy his collection yet. You mean there won't be more seasons of just a feather top to cover <laughs> my, my ample boobies? It's kind of shocking that this happened just because it's so outwardly messy to let go of a designer after a single season, or maybe he quit. Who knows? We don't know what happened. If anyone knows what happened, please call into the hotline and tell us. Um, But maybe this whole thing did work from a PR standpoint because like, this is the most we've talked about Andamula Meester in years. That is true. I wonder if this is like those people that get married and then divorced within, you know, a Kim Kardashian, Chris Humphreys wedding. Yeah. <laughs> Where they're just like, you know what? This isn't going to work out. Let's just pull the plug now. Well, you never know in a situation like this because it could either be, you know, think about like the cliche of a eccentric, fucked up, hard to work with designer that could potentially be at the helm or it's 
the, you know, corporate execs that stifle any and all creativity and try and move the person that they've hired in a completely different direction. So it's like, we don't know if it was one, the other, both, like what is happening? I'm going to go with when it's this quick of a a tenure that it's both. Well, also, I forget what the name of the luxury conglomerate that owns Andamula Meester is, but most of their big brands are streetwear brands. Like they own Off-White, they own Palm Angels. Maybe they want Andamula Meester to go in the direction of the more like streetwear adjacent side of Rick Owens. Exactly how she wanted it. (laughs) Well, it's hard because it's like, on some level it's like, I wish they would just put someone like Olivier Taskins in that role. Because it's like, you have to have like, A, be able to make like, real clothes and b you have to be vaguely gothic right you have to be into that shit gothy and kind of minimal yeah and i think the people that used to shop at and demulemeister are now probably buying clothes from rick owens the row you know yoji yamamoto has always been an adjacent brand so whoever they put in there it has to kind of live up to i think those names because why else would you shop there only only time will tell also the Barbie uh, rollout continues. The Barbieification of culture. Yeah. Look, Chelsea, we finally <laughs> got a fun Vogue cover and editorial. No, it's true. Vogue hasn't had like a fun cover since like that other Ethan James Green one, which was set in the Vogue offices. Remember that? Oh, yeah. The post COVID, like, we're all back, baby September issue. Like, that had a bit of humor in it. But before that, I can't remember the last time they've done a fun cover. Maybe like Lena Dunham's Vogue cover and editorial. Oh, that warrants its own Patreon episode, that Photoshop of horrors. But I feel like we very rarely get a cover shoot that is played for comedy. So it is nice to see that. It's been a long time since there's been an editorial this long. Yeah. As the magazine shrinks, so does even the main (laughs) editorial. Like this felt like a Annie Leibovitz 2006 Drew Barrymore as the Wizard of Oz editorial. Okay, but with a much slimmer budget, let's be real. Oh, yeah. The way this would have looked 20 years ago is it's not even in the same universe. And that's not speaking to any of the creatives involved. It's speaking to the budget that they had for this shoot. Like, this would have been a Tim Walker shoot. Yes, you can really tell because it's just different color seamlesses as the background. Yeah. Like they would have literally recreated Barbie's house 20 years ago. Which is not to say like you can do a great Barbie editorial against Seamless. Like I can't help but think about the incredible Ellen Von Unworth Vogue Italia editorial from the 90s with Claudia Schiffer. This is one of the best editorials ever. We'll link to it in the show notes because they took it one step further than American Vogue did in this cover because they made Claudia Schiffer have the physical limitations of a Barbie. Right. So when she's sitting in a chair, like her knees weren't bending. Like she actually looks like a stiff, frozen doll. Do you have the Claudia Schiffer Barbie? I wish. I wish. I do not have that. But yeah, Claudia Schiffer, she's done like multiple editorials as Barbie. There was also like a one in L by Jill Bensimon and like, I feel like Claudia Schiffer is either Barbie or Brigitte Bardot. Like, I feel like she's done like a thousand editorials as like one or the other. Going back to the editorial, Margot Robbie is in a Chanel haute couture. 
it's a dress jacket, but it looks like, you know, a tweed jacket and a skirt, but it's all one piece. Can I just say, if she had just worn this to the Met Gala... (laughs) Yeah, it was very cute. Also, the interview harkens back to celebrity profiles that we read in the 90s and the 2000s, filled with bizarre details that I feel like we don't get anymore. Like, Robbie is dressed in a vintage long-sleeve Harley Davidson t-shirt and short body bodycon onesie, the sort of thing a teenage wrestler might wear to practice. Makes me look like a giant baby, she says of the onesie at one point. I feel like we don't get those details anymore. If I'm reading a celebrity profile and what the actress is wearing is not immediately revealed to me, like something's wrong. Like that's the thing you actually want to know. You want to know what restaurant they went to. Like what, and in this case, it was Great White, which love that. For those of you who don't live in Los Angeles, a uh, chain of Australian cafes. By the beach. I really dug Greta Gerwig's quotes in this article. I'm just very excited by this film. Like the the fact that she talks about, she goes, Barbie was invented first. Ken was invented after Barbie to burnish Barbie's position in our eyes in the world. That kind of creation myth is the opposite of the creation myth in Genesis. <laughs> like she's put a lot of thought in this in the campiest of ways. Well, it's obvious that she's thought a lot about this in general. She even wrote a poem about Barbie. Which was referenced. Did you like the detail about Hari Neff's backstory she gave for her Barbie? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really cute. She was like, my Barbie is owned by like a 50-year-old gay man. Which I like to think is the man that Stanford dated in what was it, season three (laughs) with the doll collection. (laughs) Absolutely. A new trailer for Barbie came out. This was perfect timing. Where it seems like the plot of the Barbie film is essentially The Matrix. (laughs) Before I saw this trailer, I was like, I can't talk about Barbie anymore. Like, we need to just see this fucking movie. Like, I'm sick of it, you know? And of course, we always talk about it. But uh, there's too much to talk about in that trailer. Namely, like, that Indigo Girls needle drop, I did not see coming. Also, it didn't occur to me that straight women um like listen to the indigo girls alone in their cars so that was news to me that might just be a greta gerwig thing (laughs) in the very last few seconds of that song was Nicki minaj and ice spice doing barbie girl so good also we literally called this i don't know what episode that was probably the time that the teaser trailer came. but i did say we needed a Nicki minaj remix of Barbie Girl and apparently that has happened. Now, I think we should just go ahead and say Greta Gerwig is a fuckhead and listens to the podcast. (laughs) So apparently the soundtrack, like they got Mark Ronson to figure it out, produce it, I guess. Yeah. Um, Uh, Ryan Gosling even has a song. Wow, that scares me a little. But yeah, can't wait for the soundtrack. It is giving 90s soundtrack. Knowing how off the rails marketing can get, the fact that I would assume Greta Gerwig has such an ironclad control. Like even in the trailer, the tagline of, if you love Barbie, you'll love this film. If you hate Barbie, you'll love this film. (laughs) Yeah, that's smart. It's so good. Chell, have you seen the advertisements for the Barbie experience? I think it's in Santa Monica or something. I think of you every time I see this in a YouTube pre-roll ad. No, but that sounds cool. Should we go? Yeah, your wife's going out of town. We need activities to keep you busy. (laughs) 
oh, now you will be the third wheel. Oh, for, great. For so many years, I was the third wheel to uh, you and Taz. Look at this role reversal. You can berate Paul about how not liking Seinfeld was such a bad take. He didn't even not like it. He just refused to watch it for no reason. That was like me when I like was like refused to smoke pot until I was like 15. It's like, why did I do that? It's like the worst take. <laughs> you could have been smoking pot since you were 10. Yeah, exactly. Paul was talking to me he was a graphic designer and he was talking about some bad graphic design. And I was like, I'm here for you. I support your thoughts. This is really a conversation that you should be having with Chelsea. And then the two of you got on the phone and then he was like, the paper stock is bad. And you were like, oh, honey, I could talk about paper stock all day. Have you seen Vandy <laughs> Fair recently? And I was like, oh, I see where this friendship is going. <laughs> <sighs> There's only one thing left to talk about. Let's play the theme. Kardashian-aholics anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. <laughs> the Kardashians are back, baby. They're so back. This whole episode, I'm like, can we just like stop talking about all of this less interesting stuff and just talk about the Kardashians? Because like this has been the highlight of culture for me this week. It took two shitty seasons of all of us threatening to stop watching. Although, of course, we'll never do that for them to like pull out the big guns. So I guess we should start with the iconic opening to this season. <laughs> which takes place at Moonlight Roller Rink, which, having grown up in Los Angeles, was a mainstay venue for birthday parties. A few years ago, my friend Bree and I, who I co-wrote the film with Bree and I are born on the same day and we were like we're gonna go and take roller skating lessons again and we're gonna have a joint birthday party at Moonlight Rollerway I remember when you did that I was like that's so bizarre like I'm supportive as it turns out I was like oh I mean I did this as a kid I was pretty good at it it's like riding a bike Chelsea it is not like riding a bike <laughs> I felt like I was going to die each lesson. And then uh, the guy that was teaching us didn't show up one day because he got hit by a car. And we were like, all right, that's enough. I think it's a yeah. sign to stop doing this. You just did it because you probably wanted to get those really fancy roller skates. It's true. You know, I don't know what they're called, what that brand is. But like, you know me so well, because I did get the standard ones. And I was like, when I'm really good, I'll get custom ones. And guess what? I didn't get good. Well, you know who is good? The entire Kardashian family. Excellent at roller skating. Well, I like that Kendall's like, I rollerblade. <laughs> of course she does. She is the outlier. But yeah, they're all in like black Balenciaga cat suits, basically, just roller skating to Beyonce's cuff it. Surrounded by actually like proficient roller skaters that are dancing around them or sort of intercuts. Yeah, it seems like Beyonce's fans were like horrified by this, but it's like, you guys have to accept that, like, Beyonce is friends with the Kardashians. Yeah. Like, Beyonce and Jay are hanging out with Kylie Jenner and Kim and Corey and Chris. Maybe not Courtney, but, you know. Yeah, it's not like Beyonce was tricked into allowing that needle drop to happen. She was very well aware. Yeah. And was handsomely paid for it, I imagine. Yeah, well, also, I'm glad to have some video accompaniment for the song Cuff It. Like, if you're not going to give us one music video, I will take this random Kardashians roller skating thing. So I'm so curious. Is that going to be the opening for, for the, the Yeah, season? the entire season. Like, is that their new... I don't know. That was confusing to me. Because also they were like, well, we wanted to shoot our new opening and we wanted to do it while skating. 
But it's like, was that just to open up this episode? Or is the opening an edited version of what we saw? Or are we going to get that raw footage of, of them explaining that the opening is, is them skating? So good. So good. There was, there was so much juice in this episode. I don't even know where to start. Should we just go character by character, I guess? Character by character. They're people. Okay, yes. whatever, you know. Okay, shall we start Kim? Sure, let's start with Kim. Kim's not having a great day. No. That scene with Chris was incredible. Chris on the bed. Yeah. Chris on the bed with her shoes on. With her Balenciaga makeover. That's the other thing. This season of the Kardashians looks a lot different from previous seasons of the Kardashian and from Keeping Up because... Chloe and Courtney and Chris now have full Balenciaga makeovers. And obviously Kim's been dressing like that for a while. Kendall and Kylie still look normal. But yeah. it gives the show a very specific look. After two seasons and just the most insane amount of Kanye stuff that she's finally breaking that fourth wall and actively talking about him on the show and the toll that that has taken... Yeah. Which would I have loved to have seen the behind the scenes when Pete was tweeting out that he was in bed with Kim at the Beverly Hills Hotel? Yes, but I'll take this instead. She gave us a lot. She did. She also was like, it's so great that during our marriage, he started a rumor that I fucked Drake. Yeah, that's so fucked up. And then she made the very valid point, like he's going around town judging me for having a sex tape or having my ass out on the cover of interview or whatever. And it's like what the shit that he has done and said is going to be way more damaging to their kids than any of that stuff. I mean, this is the nature of the show, but it is kind of funny and ironic when she's like, I don't talk about him at all. My kids can, you know, when they're older, they can look it up. It's like, well, I mean, you are discussing it on this show, which... And you did discuss it on the last season as well, in that, like, random hiking scene with Chloe. But we never got a scene like this. We never got, like, a breakdown. She talked about how it had negatively impacted her relationship with Pete. I did find it kind of funny when she was like, you know, who wants to date me? I have four kids. I'm 40. It's like... Come on. I know. I think it would be more complicated, her schedule, which is so prescribed, but I always find it fascinating when they're shooting the show of like, so you're just like chilling on the bed seemingly in the middle of the afternoon? Like what What actually is your schedule? Do you not have the kids? Does Kanye have the kids now? Are the kids in school? Sure. I don't yes, know. Yes, the kids are in school or they're with Kanye. I don't know. They have to shoot these sister to sister, mother to daughter scenes on their giant, giant cream-colored sofas. I think what also makes this season different is it's a mixture of we're getting goss, we're getting kind of the behind the scenes of the gossip that we read, in this case with Kim and Kanye. We're getting old school like schemes, and by schemes I mean like pretend things like hey Kendall you need to show me how to drive a stick shift. Yeah. Okay can we talk about that? Because Kylie and Kendall aren't giving us drama. Like, no. they're not revealing anything about their lives. They're not revealing anything about their dating lives. Again, you know, Astro World erasure, Timothy Bad Bunny erasure. So basically, the only thing they had to do in this episode was this weird scene where 
Kendall taught her how to drive her like vintage. What was it? What kind of car was it? Uh, it's a Porsche. Her vintage Porsche. It's a beautiful looking car. It is. So I don't know if you noticed this, Lauren, but when they were driving in that stretch of sunset between the Beverly Hills Hotel and Beverly Glen, did you notice that Kendall was driving in the middle of the road? Oh. Like in the like there were two yellow lines in the center of where her car was. And I was like, what the fuck? Well, shit, I need to go back. I more was like, oh, did they go into the uh, parking garage by Erewhon and just park at yeah, the top? Yeah, they did. They did. <laughs> I was more noticing that where they stopped driving is in front of the Beverly Hills Hotel, and then the shot towards the end is from a different time where they're they're parked and pulled over. But the last thing that I think makes this season, or at least this first episode, different is something we've really never seen on the show ever, which is... Chloe talking about how like, oh, I don't really feel close to my child because I had a surrogate and no one told me how weird having a surrogate is, which is even a taboo subject. Like there's not even a New York Magazine article about that. Or Courtney saying like, yeah, I froze my eggs. None of them survived the IVF. Yeah. Not just the IVF. The The thawing. The thawing, which is a true thing that not a lot of people talk about. Yeah. No, I found that to be very real and refreshing and cool that they talked about that. Can we talk about Chloe's name for the child? Wait, what was it again? Uh, oh, you don't remember Tatum Thompson. Little old timey. That said, love Tatum O'Neill. Great. It's just not what I would have assumed she would have named the child. You know, Kylie kept us waiting for a year and a half and we learned it was air. No, it's true. It's not like a Kardashian name. It's like a normal person's name. Yeah, and then are we calling the kid Tate? Like Tate yeah. Donovan? Yeah, like um, Aiden's son, Tate. Who knew Aiden and Khloe Kardashian would have something in common? We also got a glimpse of what is sure to be my favorite Kardashian storyline ever, which is this beef between Courtney and Kim about Kim's Dolce & Gabbana collection. Controversial opinion. I think Domenico engineered that shit. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Well, they showed like a montage of clips at the beginning of this episode that teased the season. Which felt a little desperate. Like, we know you guys have been complaining. So just so you know, there's dramatic shit coming. But you saw Kim say to Courtney, like, she thinks that like, I have to ask her for permission. And it's like, yeah, because it's like she, Courtney would not have a job without Kim or would not have this career. Yes, this has been my big fucking issue ever since the Keeping Up with the Kardashian fight about Courtney not, well, Courtney being unmovable about her very lax schedule, which compared to Kim and Chloe, Courtney, your schedule is not as uh, demanding. Robust. Yeah. yeah. You have to work within Kim's schedule. I'm sorry. But Courtney not wanting to shoot and being like, I just want to be with my family without the self-awareness to be like, and again, this bothered me that Kim was like, hey, 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 why do you think you get to just be with your kids all day if you wanted to? Because we're set up for life because of the fucking show we did. Yeah. That mom and I brought to air. Because really... For the first few years, the drama of that show was Courtney and Scott. 
Right. Which is another reason I think that Kendall and Kylie are able to kind of coast and not really show their personal lives because they were children when the show started. So you couldn't show too much of what was really going on with their lives. And I think they've just kept that energy of like... Yeah, no, that's so true. Kim says... Dolce and Gabbana asked me to be the creative director of like their next collection. Yes. They didn't ask Courtney. Yes, that obviously fucks with Courtney's wedding vibes. As she said, did she say wedding vibes? No, it was Kendall that was like, Courtney feels like her wedding vibes have been erased or something. Stripped. Stripped from her. Her (laughs) wedding vibes. her, Her wedding vibes have been stripped from her. Paul was watching the first episode next to me and he goes, did they say anything more than amazing or amazingly? And I was like, you don't understand the whole you're doing amazing, sweetie thing. Yes, this is a a big part of their brand. But yeah, they do not have a robust vocabulary. Also, we're not talking about maybe the most bizarre (laughs) part of this episode, which was Kendall's... (laughs) The Iron Man that delivered Kendall's 818 reserve? Yeah, Kendall had a 818... Her annual 818 party on 818. We need to celebrate this holy day in the future. Well, now we can because I was gifted from my father whose favorite Kardashian-Jenner is Kendall, the 818 reserve, that that Iron Man with the giant rocket launcher? Jetpack on his back? yeah. Jetpack. But he only travels like six feet with it. It's not like it's not like they watched a video and the man launched out like from Mexico with the tequila and then he like was in the backyard. They literally watched him take off, go six feet, <laughs> and then land in front of them. Poor Stormy had to have the little earmuffs on. Imagine actually being at this event, though, because simultaneously you have, like, an episode of the Kardashians being filmed. <laughs> right. Like, so you have a full crew, all the Kardashians, jetpack guy with the tequila, and then James Corden just, like, popping out like a, you know, a jack-in-the-box or something. His proclamation to Chloe that he believes at a certain point all babies look like him is at once the most self-hating statement I've ever heard, but also the most selfish thing yes. that a person could say. <laughs> no, straight up. And it's like, why is he at this weird 818 activation Like, I get that, like, they very deliberately cultivate relationships with certain talk show hosts, with him and Ellen specifically, right? Ellen, and they do go on Kimmel a bunch because Kimmel is the late night talk show host of their parent company, Disney. So I get that there's a business element to this. I just find it bizarre because he was the only celebrity there. I know, there wasn't even, like, Faye Resnick or, like, one of Chris's friends or something. Yeah, not even, like, a Kathy Hilton just, like, stopping by. Or who's their friend, Fi? Yeah, yeah, where was he? (laughs) He's like, I'm going to sit this one out. Yeah, I just, that was thrilling to me, though. We're also not talking about, because we got so distracted by Jetpack Man, that there was a robot making the drinks. Oh, yeah. That was so Right, right, that that was the other thing that made it so crazy. Yeah, that was also, my God, how sad was it when James Corden asked Chloe, like, what have you been up to lately? And she was like, oh, nothing, same old, same old. And then she remembered like, oh, yeah, I had a baby. But again, it's like she doesn't really register this kid as, you know, which is so 
fucking sad. Their obsession as a family with having siblings or multiple siblings with the same baby daddy, I find very odd. No, I agree. It's just the whole thing is so... Poor Chloe, honestly. She doesn't need that. Can you imagine? After all the stuff with Tristan, now it's like she can't connect with this child. And that's my worst fear. Because on one hand, I feel like I wouldn't need, like a child wouldn't have to be mine biologically for me to love it. But on the other hand, like the horror story is feeling like that. That is her child biologically. The double-edged sword when talking about Chloe especially in relation to life choices she's made, is we're unbelievably sympathetic and we want the best for her, but these are, a lot of this are decisions she made on her own. She had she had to have a sibling for True with Tristan. I mean, she very yeah, yeah. intentionally made this decision. Well, I think it's great that she's being so candid talking about it. Oh, we're also forgetting how Courtney was late to a meeting with Chloe at her own home. This was Courtney's house that they were at. She was late, then was like, I'm ovulating. Do you mind if we go downstairs and fuck? To which Chloe puts on the timer, and it was 15 minutes. I mean, that's like a normal amount of time, no? No, it, it is. I, I, that's not what I'm judging. But oh, it's just... that she, it was longer than five minutes? Well, yeah, she says five minutes, and then Courtney comes back upstairs and was like, let me guess, 15 minutes, and... Chloe was like, it was like 1459 or something. Well, then she reveals that when she was a little girl, she was playing hide and seek and she fell asleep and she heard Chris and Caitlin fucking. Yeah. <laughs> no thoughts on that? Uh, Well, she actually dead names him. She says Bruce, but... We're not going to go there. No, I was more thinking about both my parents listen to this podcast and if I'm going to reveal the fact that I have once heard my parents having sex. I've never... Oh, really? I've never seen them, but I did once overhear them. Wait, what was the situation? We... So, so sorry, Mom and <laughs> They're like bracing themselves. <laughs> no, we were at my grandparents' house in Florida and I don't know, we'd come back for the day or swimming and I, I had my dad's wallet and so I... Uh, I went to go open their bedroom door, the door they were staying at, it was locked. And they were like, uh, we'll be out in a minute. And then I like put my ear up against the door and I was like, oh, okay. So you're a little pervert is what you're saying. I think it's pretty much well known. I'm a little pervert. (laughs) I've never heard my parents having sex, which I feel like is a huge accomplishment for any parent. That's true. Your parents came close almost (laughs) <laughs> they had to fuck at grandma and grandpa's house. You know what? I love that uh, Andy and Kathy are still very much attracted to each other. Oh, absolutely. It's astonishing that you haven't witnessed your parents having sex only for the fact that the amount of times you've seen your father naked. Right. Well, that's just like hippie rural shit. I guess my thing with Courtney and Travis is like, if this is so important to you, why have a meeting with Chloe? Also, you have to fuck right now. You're ovulating all day. Just fuck it an hour. Yeah, so true. Wait, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Unless they were doing that as a put on for a show. But maybe they just like have sex all day. You know, they're like, oh, we'll have sex like five times today or something. I'm just shaking my head. I still, I, the more insulting thing is that Courtney was late to her own meeting with her sister in her own home. 
It's obviously rude. All right, guys, that about does it for us. We'll be back next week with a Sex and the City rewatch episode. We're dying to talk about Yellow Jackets, but we haven't watched the finale yet. So we will release a little Patreon episode early next week about that. And I hope you guys are having a lovely Memorial Day weekend to those in America. And uh, for the rest of you, just another weekend. Yes, I'm sorry to those that do not have a three-day weekend. Although I guess like everyone in Europe gets like so much vacation time anyway. As we're recording a shit ton of podcasts, they're taking six weeks off in France. The joke is ultimately on us, Chelsea. As usual. Anyway, we will see you guys next week. All right. I love you, Chell. Love you, Lauren. Bye. Bye. Bye.